effectively these genealogy databases have amounted to a national DNA database that law enforcement can use at any time without permission and that's really the question. I, I, I think it's important to ask whether the Fourth Amendment ever might regulate this. I'm just not confident that it will. Welcome to Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. Today we're discussing law enforcement use of genealogy databases to solve cold cases. Here to help us understand this topic are Natalie Ram, Assistant Professor at the University of Baltimore Law School, and Jason Craig, Associate Professor at the University of Arizona, James E. Rogers College of Law. Thank you both for joining us. Let's just get started with you, Natalie, and uh, let's talk about what exactly is a genealogy database? Sure. So thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Um, so traditionally, law enforcement have solved crimes using genetic information by turning to the official kind of constellation of DNA databases housed in the Combined DNA Index System, or CODIS. That is comprised of kind of a pyramid of local feeding into state, feeding into a national DNA database to which also FBI and the District of Columbia um, also have uh, databases that are a part of the CODIS system. And the CODIS system um, is not a genealogy database, but it's what police have traditionally relied on when they're using DNA to solve crimes. That's comprised of individuals uh, subject to a variety of different state laws in every state, individuals arrested uh, or, or every state, um, individuals convicted of certain crimes, and in many states, also individuals arrested of certain crimes can have their DNA compelled and put into that database. Um, and the turn that the kind of the Golden State Killer case introduced is the use of genealogy databases or consumer genetics platforms to uh, serve law enforcement purposes. And those databases are the kind of online consumer databases that you might be thinking of when you hear about genealogy databases, right? So law enforcement is not currently using 23andMe or Ancestry.com, though those are the two biggest players in the field. They are using, uh, I think, the third largest uh, player in the field, or may maybe the fourth, Family Tree DNA, now has come out publicly to say we're working with the FBI. Um, and then the most popular platform that has been used is a small website called GEDmatch.com, which actually doesn't sequence anybody's DNA, um, but allows you to upload your DNA file that has been sequenced by some other service. So if, if I got my DNA sequenced to 23andMe, and you got your DNA sequenced at Ancestry, we couldn't ordinarily compare our DNA to each other to find out if we're related. But if we both download our DNA files and upload them to GEDmatch, now we can compare. And because GEDmatch was kind of this open platform, you could upload genetic data from anywhere, police figured out we can upload some DNA data too and, uh, and start to do um, investigative searches. Can you walk us through how can the police take, you know, DNA that they find on one of these databases that belongs to my cousin and then trace it to me, which seems to be what's going on in now. The context is they're taking, they're seeing DNA from a distant relative on one of these websites and then suddenly they can trace it back to that guy's second cousin twice removed. So... This goes back to the fundamental biology of genetic inheritance, right? So our DNA doesn't just, it's not random, 
we all inherit the kind of genetic variations that are identifiable to us that, that let someone say that DNA came from Professor Ram um, from our parents, right? I got 50% of my DNA from my mom, 50% from my dad. My sister got 50% of her DNA from my mom, 50% from dad. And so I am 50% genetically identical to each of my genetic parents. And statistically, I'm likely to have about 50% of my genetic variations in common with my full sibling. And then the farther you go out on the family tree, the, the less kind of genetically similar we expect individuals to be. But there is kind of a statistical probability that there will be a certain amount of shared genetic variation among individuals who are within the same genetic family tree. And so by knowing those statistics, right, you can, uh, and this is now what these genetic genealogy services are doing, look at uh, a, a DNA profile developed from crime scene DNA, look at the genetic profiles in the GenMatch database, compare those, and based on the uh, amount and location of the overlapping genetic variations, make an estimate about what the genetic relationship is between two individuals. Individuals that might not even know each other or know that, <laughs> that the other one exists, right? But if investigators or genealogists can uncover that kind of relationship, then they can uh, build a family tree kind of back in time to a common shared ancestor and then build the same family tree forward through time to identify all of the current family members who are at, at the right kind of level of remove, right? We know these people are second cousins, so now I'm going to identify the person whose name I know, all of their second cousins, and then work from there to figure out who might be the, the criminal perpetrator. So the most well-publicized instance I think that a lot of people have heard of is with the Golden State Killer, Joseph D'Angelo, who was suspected of committing more than a dozen murders and, and rapes in California during the late 70s. Um, he wasn't the first person police have used this technique on, but he's kind of the biggest fish they've caught, I guess, or most well-publicized. How exactly did the police catch him in that instance? So in that case, um, police did essentially what I just discussed. They took old crime scene DNA um, they had previously worked up a, a profile that could be compared against the official law enforcement CODIS database. They didn't get a match. Um, and then they, the lead investigator developed a relationship with some genealogists and had uh, other crime scene DNA turn into a, uh, a profile that could be uploaded and compatible with the GEDmatch database. Right. That profile, by the way, looks quite different from the CODIS database. It doesn't look at, um, at like the limited data that goes into a CODIS profile. It looks at hundreds of thousands of data points across the human genome. Right. So it's much more information rich. Um, and using that profile, the investigators uploaded that to the GEDmatch database, identified a couple of third cousins and then kind of worked with a genealogist to build out a family tree and then trace that back down to Mr. D'Angelo. So let's move on to, I think, the bigger issue that's lurking in the background is the Fourth Amendment. Um, just can, we'll start with you, Professor Craig, can you give us kind of a basic walkthrough of how the Fourth Amendment works and how it's going to apply in the context of DNA, why we're worried about it, 
in particular with uh, the police using your DNA um, in order to arrest you? Sure, there's a couple of general um, issues um, at, at stake here. The, the basic question is, uh, does someone have a reasonable expectation of privacy in their um, genetic material, in their cells that contain their, um, uh, their genome? Um, and that comes up in these cases in, in at least two ways. Um, uh, well, potentially when police collect the crime scene um, evidence that involves uh, DNA from blood, saliva, or, or some other fluid, well, they're, they're identifying a genetic profile from that evidence. And, and as Professor Ram said, they used to just identify um, portions of our genome that was non-coding, um, that doesn't uh, translate to individual traits, or at least none that we know of at this point in time, and an exceedingly minimal portion of our DNA. Um, but now with um, these genealogy databases, they're um, using a different type of testing that can um, include um, predictive uh, uh, traits for people. Um, so there's a question of there about the Fourth Amendment of, of kind of the amount of information that police get to use these type of genetic databases. I think, though, that the Fourth Amendment really won't kick in at that point in time because the crime scene evidence um, hasn't been attached to someone. It's been left by the perpetrator. Um, there's a second question, though, later on in the process of finding, for example, Mr. Mr. D'Angelo, um, they had to go back and obtain, um, once they identified him or thought that they identified him through the genealogy databases, they did, then went to um, and tailed him to, to collect um, DNA that he had recently um, sloughed off or deposited. Um, and I can't remember in this case exactly what they picked up, a napkin, a, a water bottle or whatever it was, a cigarette. Um, but they, they did, and they obtained his DNA from that, and that was specifically targeting him. So there's at least a chance that the Supreme Court might say that um, in order to open up his DNA, once they've developed a kind of suspicion that's targeted him, that maybe you'll need to get a warrant. Now, I don't think we're there. I do think that a recent case um, about cell phones, of all things, might give the court some rationale for um, requiring a warrant to open up um, uh, um, sloughed off DNA. Uh, but I think there are several um, hurdles before the court will get there. Um, but that is at least at least two instances where Fourth Amendment protections, our reasonable expectation of privacy, come into play. Now, there's a strong argument that uh, the Fourth Amendment won't have anything to say about this because um, in each of these two instances, law enforcement are collecting DNA that has been shed or deposited, um, uh, you know, one at the crime scene and then one uh, later in time when they're confirming the match um, by you know, someone leaving um, a piece of paper or a water bottle or a cigarette, cigarette butt. Um, so there's, a, there's an opportunity there, but I, I, I'm not confident that the court is going to be aggressively using the Fourth Amendment to regulate this type of, of search. So I think, you know, you can use either the lens of property or the lens of privacy to talk about um, interests in genetic information. And I think either lens can get you um, fundamentally to about the same place. The Carpenter decision actually had some very interesting things to say about the relationship quasi-property claims in the Fourth Amendment. Um, in addition to the uh, Fourth Amendment um, events or possible Fourth Amendment events that Professor Craig has identified, um, I've written uh, and, and argued that there could be potentially as many as two others that have to do with the actual database search and identification um, using the genealogy database. So I, I have a 
a forthcoming paper that argues that individuals after the Carpenter decision might well have an expectation of privacy, a relevant Fourth Amendment interest um, in their genetic material when it is stored on a consumer genetics platform, um, that in certain instances they might consent to law enforcement use of that data, but that um, uh, ordinarily that their expectation of privacy in genetic um, information um, should persist notwithstanding their um, sharing of it or having their, their cells analyzed by one of these consumer genetics firms. And then there is kind of the separate issue about what interest I might have in the genetic information derived from, say, my sister's cells, if, those, if that genetic data can be used to identify and learn about me, right? It's not my cells, but it is in some sense data about me. It's deeply revealing data about me. And what's really, uh, I think, critical about the nature of that information is that because the information about me that resides kind of as a statistical matter, but a useful for law enforcement matter, nonetheless, in my sister cells, resides there through no voluntary conduct of my own, right? My relationship with my sister is completely involuntary. I didn't ask my parents for a younger sister. I, I, I love my younger sister, but, you know, when you ha had you asked me as a young child, I might have preferred she, <laughs> she not enter the picture, right? So we don't choose our parents. We don't choose our siblings, our aunts, uncles, and cousins, um, much less the arrangement and number of those individuals that we have. But their DNA or the, the data derived from their cells can be used to learn about and identify us you know, through no voluntary conduct of our own, right? Um, and, and the scope of identifiability in these online genetics platforms um, is growing by leaps and bounds to the tune that um, nearly 90% uh, of Americans of European descent will soon be identifiable through uh, a consumer genetics platform to law enforcement. Professor Craig, do you want to jump in here on the Carpenter decision and the implications? Yeah, I think that there's a, a couple of things. I think the most important thing is what Professor Ram said is that effectively these genealogy databases have amounted to a national DNA database that law enforcement can use at any time without permission. And that's really the question. I, I, I think it's important to ask whether the Fourth Amendment ever might regulate this. I'm just not confident that it will. I do want to add, though, that um, uh, Professor Ram's point about kind of choice and what happens voluntarily is, is also at play in this, um, regardless of whether we have a choice and whether our siblings or family members decide to use um, 23andMe, um, the endpoint of the system always requires a law enforcement officer to do this confirmation. And in each instance that we know about publicly, they've done it by surreptitiously collecting shed DNA. So the Supreme Court, if they are interested in this, this um, kind of line of argument, might say that just as it's like effectively a requirement of kind of life in modern times to have a cell phone, we know that by definition, by being alive, all of us are shedding our DNA all the time. We don't have a choice in it. And so there might be a way to distinguish kind of shed DNA, which is integral to using um, uh, forensic gene genealogy databases from kind of other things that we uh, um, uh, lose our expectation of privacy because we discard them. So I, but it, ultimately my point is that um, uh, I think we should look outside of the Fourth Amendment um, to uh, identify places where we could regulate um, law enforcement's use of this. 
or at a minimum, um, allow us and, and the individuals who use these databases to find ancestors and otherwise to know what they're doing, to have some idea of what is going on. Because law enforcement sees it just like the history of policing. They're going to find a new tool if it's useful to them, and they're going to try and use it. And that's exactly what they did here. That's a great point. And I think one thing I want to touch on, too, is as citizens, you know, it's seems great, you know, law enforcement is tracking down these cold cases and people who perpetrated horrific crimes, and that seems great to us. But, you know, on the other end, why as citizens should we be concerned just in general about our privacy? Is there a way police or law enforcement or the government could potentially abuse this, you know, these genealogy databases, why we should be informed as citizens, and concern beyond the criminal law context. We can start with you, Professor Craig. I think there's no doubt that there's going to be mistakes. Um, family tree DNA, like GEDmatch, is now open platform, and so they they allow uploads from Ancestry um, and 23andMe, other sources to their databases. And so, in fact, they found out that FBI was using their database because someone tried to upload a file that wasn't um, their their system didn't recognize. So they sent an email to the, to the person who was a contact, and it turns out it was the FBI. And they got a call, and they said, you know, the FBI said, we've been using your database for some number of months. We don't know how many. They didn't say how many. And no one knew it, Family Tree DNA. And they said, if you don't let us keep using it, we're just going to subpoena you, and we're going to use it anyways. And so ultimately, Family Tree DNA said they're going to do it. But there certainly are um, possibilities of error um, so in a cold case where police have collected evidence from a crime scene, um, they intend and they hope that they collect only probative evidence. That is only evidence that was um, deposited by the perpetrator. But we can't know in advance that that's the case. Um, and so particularly when law enforcement is using uh, what um, some people call contact DNA, um, um, skin cells that are otherwise sloughed off, and that's found at the crime scene, we don't really know. And so it's possible that 10 years later, 20 years later, they've identified that it's something that they think is uh, probative DNA. And then they get a match in one of these genealogy databases and they go to this person. And, and now this person has to answer for why their DNA showed up near this crime scene um, years before. Um, uh, there may be plenty of uh, um, innocent explanations for it being there. Um, there's also just room for um, uh, more sinister errors. Um, right now, there's no, um, there's nothing that prevents someone from, I mean, there are laws, but there's, there's no hurdles that one couldn't jump over from collecting DNA from someone else surreptitiously, um, running it through um, one of the um, DNA testing organizations, and then uploading it to publicly available um, databases um, for sinister reasons. Um, uh, they just don't know. Family Tree DNA didn't know when the FBI was using their database, and they can't know when someone else is using it for um, wrong reasons. They make people, before they use it, they make people sign certain things and abide by certain regulations, but it's very, very hard to regulate that. And then finally, there's also just a pure risk of just human error with these things. Um, we've seen it in cases of, of innocence. Um, Dwayne Jackson spent years in jail, in prison in Nevada, simply because... Um, the lab technician confused two DNA samples um, during the testing, and uh, he, it cost him several years of his life. So there are there are areas where um, errors can come into play, and, and my hope is that 
for um, those reasons and because we haven't actually had a conversation about whether we want the effective equivalent of a national DNA database that regulators and lawmakers will begin that conversation. Talking about some of the inaccuracy and problems with the technique and the risk for wrongful convictions is a good way to segue into um, how should we think about the growing availability of personal data in law enforcement and does the amount of personal data that individuals are putting online now on, you know, in particular on these these databases, does that require a new investigatory process for law enforcement? So I, I think the question that you're getting at is kind of what what's the right policy going forward for this kind of data? And I agree with Professor Craig that the kind of the best path forward, right? There, there are, you know, potential Fourth Amendment claims. There are a variety of hoops that, uh, that uh, criminal defendants would have to jump through in order to succeed on those claims. Um, and so the, the best path forward may well be a legislative or policy-based solution. Um, and then there's kind of this underlying question of, are Americans comfortable and on board with a effectively national comprehensive DNA database for law enforcement use. And I think that those two questions are related because I don't actually believe that most Americans really want a national DNA database for law enforcement use. Um, And I think that there are kind of two recent legislative proposals press at two different policy approaches. First, in the state of Maryland, in my home state, um, a, a member of the House of Delegates introduced a bill that would have barred the use of any DNA database to identify family members of people in that database as targets for law enforcement investigation. Now, that's quite a strong rule that would um, effectively say for genetic genealogy, you can you know, use an online uh, consumer genetics platform to identify someone directly included in the database, if, if say, Joseph D'Angelo had used 23andMe, downloaded his data, and then uploaded it to GenMatch, then that would be okay. But if it's merely his third cousin, it's not okay. And, and that makes some sense in the state of Maryland, which has already prohibited the use of the official law enforcement database to identify family members as targets of investigation. So this just kind of said, we used to say it for the state CODIS database, Now you're using these other databases, so now we're going to say no familial searching in any database, right? So that's one policy approach. That that bill was introduced. It did not make it out of committee. It died in committee. The legislative session is over. But the delegate, you know, has said this is the start of a conversation about what the right policy is. What are the right limitations for this kind of new technology? And then there's another legislative proposal. And Professor Craig, maybe you know more about how this came about. Uh, because you are in Arizona, and it was an Arizona bill that would have radically expanded the scope of the state's law enforce, official law enforcement database um, to include basically anyone who has to be fingerprinted for employment or volunteer work reasons. I, I think that was a result of a, a very tragic case here, um, and um, that involved um, a sexual assault, um, and this was a response to it as an effort to try and um, basically increase the, the number of people who are in the, the database here. But it drew a very quick backlash um, uh, from, uh, not surprisingly, from law enforcement officers and, and other people who would otherwise 
um, have to give fingerprints, um, that they did not want to also contribute their genetic material to build a database here in Arizona. And it was modified in, in great ways. And so, but I think this one was really not, also not a legislative um, uh, fix that was a part of kind of deliberation and thought about whether or not we want to increase the size of, of genetic databases. It was just kind of a reactionary uh, proposal based on one very tragic case. Um, but it was quickly watered down. And I think that that does support your point that there's not an appetite for a, a, at least and not an appetite for us to know that we're building a, the equivalent of a national DNA database. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. That the rapid, <laughs> the rapid amendment of this bill, the, the moment it, it got some public attention um, that, that would actually ultimately passed out of the committee in the state legislature was, was basically an unrecognizable version of the bill uh, not at all having to do with expanding the scope of the database of known individuals, uh, really kind of demonstrates that if people are asked, if, if, if the question really is, do you want a national comprehensive law enforcement DNA database? The answer, I think, is quite clearly no. Um, and if we are uncomfortable and we think it is inappropriate to have that kind of a database for law enforcement purposes, then um, achieving the same thing by kind of de facto means through these genealogy databases where millions of Americans are kind of involuntarily included in the scope of law enforcement reach by virtue of a genetic relative's decision to upload their data to GEDmatch or Family Tree DNA should give us the same pause. Let me just add one thing. I, I largely agree with that, and I want to have that conversation about whether or not we want to have a national database. But there is a, there's at least one point that I'd like to bring up that 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 is a positive of, of this type of genetic surveillance. Um, our existing uh, law enforcement um, DNA databases are skewed based on race and income, just like many law enforcement activities. I mean, they're built on the population of people who are arrested and convicted. Um, and, and that's certainly the case. And, and I think that there's good reason to believe that the population of people who use 23andMe and Ancestry.com and then upload their profile um, does not overlap fully with the population of people who are subject to arrests and conviction, um, the kind of normal uh, way that people enter law enforcement's genetic surveillance realm. And so there's, there's a potential here to um, kind of at least minimize some of the way that to date genetic surveillance by law enforcement has been um, kind of disproportionately affecting certain parts of the population and leaving others out. Um, definitely a national database would do the same thing, uh, assuming that policing policed um, and, and spread their policing resources um, evenly. So there is at least a potential, though, to um, minimize some of the disproportionate ways that the FBI's CODIS database has been built based on arrests and convictions by using this other database. I still think, though, with that said, um, it's uh, really important to have a conversation about whether we want it um, before kind of what, what's happened now. We're just falling into it, um, and it exists without anyone really, um, uh, certainly legislatures, um, thinking too carefully about it. Great point. Um Last question, just what are your, what would be either your ideal legislative or policy solutions if you, you know, were going to present a bill um, or if you were trying to inform law enforcement, you know, what would you say, what what kind of legislation do you think would actually be effective in protecting the privacy interests and 
but also taking into account the needs of law enforcement. Yeah, well, this one is is definitely not the ideal, but might be something that could be passable, might actually work. So at, at a minimum, it would just be really wonderful to know how often any law enforcement agencies are uploading a pro- profile to GetMatch or Family Tree DNA or using these services. We just don't know. We hear about the ones that end up in an arrest, um, but they're certainly not the only times when this is happening. And so that a minimum, some kind of uh, requirement that, that um, essentially is just a disclosure requirement, so we would know what law enforcement is doing, I think would be a very, very helpful step um, to um, identify what would, you know, might be more regulations. Uh, without knowing that, it's hard to, um, uh, it's hard to even know the scope of what's going on. We just do, we do know, based on at least this one instance from Family Tree DNA, when, when the FBI called up and told them that they had been using their database for um, a long time, um, Uh, without anyone knowing. We know it happened, but we don't know the scope of it. So I testified in Annapolis in support of the bill that was proposed that would bar the use of any genetic database to identify family members as targets of investigation. And uh, and I've been quite public. That is, in my view, the most ethically and legally consistent position to take because of the involuntary nature of familial relatedness. Um, so that is a it's a strong position to have. Um, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily make me popular with law enforcement, but I think that it is the most, um, a, as I said, ethically and legally consistent position. I think kind of a, a second order solution um, would be to see um, something like what has what happened um, in the wake of kind of the first law enforcement interest in a different type of familial identification, and that was the use of official state law enforcement DNA databases, the the state coded, the state components of CODIS to identify family members for investigation as targets of investigation. Now, of course, because of the limited nature of that DNA, um, the kind of useful data you can get out of that is much more limited if it exists at all, and was limited mostly to kind of first-order relatives, parents and children, or full genetic siblings. Um, But even in in those instances, many states recognized that the use of those DNA profiles in the CODIS database to identify uh, not direct matches, but partial DNA matches indicating that a family member might have committed the crime in question was something new and different um, and worthy of, of closer consideration. And a variety of states, about a handful, maybe a half dozen um, states, put in place quite detailed policies. California, Colorado has some policy um, in place. Um, Texas and Virginia are are kind of the big ones that have quite detailed publicly available policies governing when familial identification searches are permissible in their own official state database. And those, those policies um, say that, you know, have a variety of different constraints, but the types of constraints that they put in place are, you know, these have to be violent crimes um, against a person, right? So that kind of mimics that family tree DNA and GEDmatch requirement that it be, you know, a homicide or sexual assault case, um, that all traditional law enforcement methods have been exhausted, um, that you get a commitment from law enforcement to follow up on any useful data, uh, or potentially useful data that is uncovered through that search, um, and, th- and that the crime scene sample 
be a really good profile or, or, or lead lab personnel to believe that it's quite a good profile, either that it's a single source sample or a fully deduced full profile from a non-complex mixture, right? So that we have confidence that the crime scene profile is legit and that the crime in question is serious enough to warrant this kind of law enforcement search. So I, that's not my preferred outcome, but I think it would certainly be better than this kind of wild west we're in now where there are, as Professor Craig has noted, there are no rules or regulations currently on the ground. Uh, law enforcement is kind of making, making it up as they go along, and they are inclined to push the envelope as far as they can. Thank you both for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Thank you. This has been Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. Follow us on Twitter at UshaiLRAV. You can find more episodes of Briefly on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud.